Hello, everyone. Welcome to the California Association of Tactical Officers podcast, where we discuss a variety of SWAT-related topics. We believe tactics are a science, and the art is in how we apply those tactics. My name is Marcus Sprague. And I'm Brent Stratton. In this episode, Brent and I sit down with retired Alexandria, Virginia Captain Tom Panther. I recently met Tom at an all-hazards management course at Texas A&M, where he was a member of the instructor cadre. That course was packed with practical exercises teaching leaders how to manage dynamic and complex incidents like natural disasters, plane crashes, and terrorist attacks. Who better to be part of the instructor cadre than someone who was tasked with managing the response to the Pentagon attacks on 9-11? I asked Tom to come share his story and lessons learned from a law enforcement perspective. So Tom, thanks for being with us on the Cato Podcast. Brent and I uh, asked you to... uh, Come and share your experiences and your wisdom and knowledge uh, about your response to the Pentagon attack. But I wanted to briefly touch on the fact that I met you in uh, Texas, in uh, Teeks, in an all hazards management class. And you're one of the adjunct instructors there. And uh, a little plug for the Teeks class uh, I am not a fireman, I'm a cop, and uh, I know how to use the ICS barely. And uh, that was probably the best class that I've ever gone to that was 95, 98% practical application with instructors with real world experience and a very good balance in the class of uh, different people from law enforcement, EMS, uh, fire, as well as the instructors. And you were one of those instructors. And so I, I heard your story a little bit, but there's so much more that we could talk about that I wanted to know if you would share your stories about what you learned for us so we don't repeat those lessons. So to get started, Tom, uh, thanks for being here. And if you would just tell the listeners a little bit about uh, who you are and your background. All right. Thank you, Marcus and Brent. And I'm, I'm very honored to be here. Um, my name is Tom Panther. I am now retired, but I was also a cop that appreciates ICS and, and the benefits it can bring to incidents or events or any kind of planning for any kind of activities. Um, I spent uh, 33 years uh, in Arlington, Virginia. Arlington is right across the Potomac from Washington, D.C. It is the home of the Pentagon. Uh, When 9-11 happened, I was in my uh, 28th year on the department. I was the most senior captain in the department. And I was, at that time, a district commander. Uh, We had Arlington, which is uh, 100% all urban. We had uh, Arlington divided into four different police districts. I was commander of the fourth police district, uh, which took up about one-fourth of Arlington. Uh, Ironically, the Pentagon was within the district boundaries of my district, but we didn't police it. It was federal jurisdiction. They had their own police department. Um, I had been... uh, My department did a lot of effort to train all of their their people uh, as as greatly in depth as they could. Uh, I was uh, one of the captains uh, that was able to attend the FBI National Academy in Quantico. I spent three months there uh, taking executive level, graduate level uh, things. I was also the beneficiary of a ton of of training. Uh, On 9-11, ironically, we had just retrained all of the supervisors in the police department with ICS. As you know, back then, before 9-11, there was no NIMS, National Incident Management System. There was not four levels of ICS. There was just ICS. Uh, We were gearing up the fall of 2001 to be a mutual aid partner to Washington, D.C. They were going to be hosting the World Bank International Monetary Fund meetings. And the last time those meetings were hosted in the U.S. was in 1999, when the city of Seattle ended up uh, multiple days of destructive protests, riots, and all of that. The intel was the same thing was going to happen in the fall of 2001. We spent uh, all of the summer retraining all of our supervisors in ICS. Coincidentally, I happened to be the commander of our civil disturbance unit. We were going to be deploying 65 officers downtown. 
we spent the whole summer doing a lot of civil disturbance unit training. And I went to a lot of meetings, usually hosted down in Washington, attended by people that ended up being our mutual aid partners at the Pentagon. Uh, a lot of the meetings were either run by or supported by the FBI. So we spent all summer meeting all of these people and establishing relationships that became very valuable on 9-11. Ironically, on the day of 9-11, I was supposed to be the evening shift watch commander for the whole county. I was actually off that morning and I was walking our two dogs in an urban park uh, out near where we lived then. And I came upon two women on the park trail and they both had these distraught looks on their faces. And, and one of the women said to me, my God, have you heard what happened? And I said, no, I, I'd been in the park about an hour. She said, two planes have just flown into the World Trade Center and now we just heard a plane has hit the Pentagon. Well, the Pentagon's in Arlington. I turned right around and both dogs, we ran home. I turned on the TV real quick while I was putting on my uniform. I jumped in my take-home car. I ran red light and siren uh, to the Pentagon. Uh, it just so happened I, I drove up the way I would normally commute to work. All the ramps uh, to the Pentagon were now closed, obviously. And I got through the barricades and I stumbled upon our initial incident command post uh, reported in. Uh, and here is a side story about empowered leadership. Uh, in 2001, we had a chief of police, three deputy chiefs, 13 captains. Our chief of police was at a conference in Atlantic City, New Jersey. My boss, the deputy chief of operations, was in Miami Beach doing an assessment center as they were picking a deputy chief of police. My closest friend, uh, deputy chief of systems management, was in the state capitol, Richmond, at a police corps meeting. We had one deputy chief in Arlington at the time, uh, chief, uh, deputy chief in charge of major crimes. He was the acting chief of police, and he appropriately knew his role, which was to be on the executive management team for this big disaster. He did not come to the incident site. He should not have. So I arrived at our, our first established command post and met one of my fellow district commanders, who's a captain. And that week, she was filling in for our boss, who was in Miami Beach. So she's the acting deputy chief of police. I reported into the command post and we started doing a lot of those hyperactive initial response uh, kind of activities uh, that you would expect. Uh, Marcus, I know in the class we were in in Texas, you saw the handwritten kind of org chart that we developed, uh, something I think is a source of pride. You're not going to have computers that early. You've got to get out a piece of paper and a pen and start documenting. So that was kind of the beginning. Um, eventually, about two hours after the attack, our deputy chief that had been in Richmond arrived on the scene, and he at that time took command. And so during uh, most of that morning, uh, the other captain and I were kind of like, deputy unified commanders for a while. And then eventually uh, the chief of police made his way back uh, from Atlantic City. And I was involved in the discussions and the decision was made that my police department uh, would designate three commanders to be part of the unified command team. Uh, my deputy chief uh, that came from Richmond uh, the captain that was the acting deputy chief that week, and myself. So the three of us uh, split up uh, the whole rest of the 19 days we were there, and we rotated in and out as the unified commander for the Arlington Police Department. I will say, uh, and the NEMS uh, referees would throw the flag on this, uh, 
there were oftentimes all three of us were there in the command post at the same time. One of us would be designated to go to some high level meeting to make some decisions. One would remain in the command post as the unified commander. Uh, one might be just acting as kind of an unofficial deputy unified commander. And uh, we worked out where um, we figured out how we planned out the whole rest of the time we would be there. It ended up being uh, 19 straight days, 38 operational periods. And I'll, I'll give you a real quick leadership story. About day five, uh, the chief of police discovered that all three of us were in the command post. And he showed up. And this was either a Saturday or a Sunday. And he grabbed all three of us and he said, okay, who's off tomorrow? And who's off Monday? And who's off Tuesday? And all three of us got real defensive and we were kind of putting up a struggle. And he said, look, no BS. One of you is off tomorrow. One of you is off the next day. One of you is off the third day. I don't care who it is. You figure it out. You are not to be here that whole day. All of you need a day off. Get the hell out of here and do something normal for one 24-hour period. So I see that as leadership. None of the three of us liked that uh, order, but it was appropriate. And, and so the three of us real quickly figured out amongst the three of us who's doing what about uh seven or eight days later the same thing happened who's off tomorrow so i was off of the 19 days we were there i was there not there two days same with my two colleagues we all had two days off during that 19 day response so that is one example of leadership Another uh, example, and I, I mentioned this in the case study, Marcus, this happened on the morning of the 11th. I was in the command post. Our primary unified commander was the assistant fire chief of the Arlington Fire Department. And I, there are a lot of cops in this country that don't believe me. The FBI bought into that that our primary unified commander during rescue phase of this operation was the assistant fire chief of Arlington Fire Department. One of the most chilling radio messages I ever heard, the dispatcher called us and, and in fact, she heard the alert tone three times, which means officer in trouble. We heard three alert tones on main dispatch. Dispatcher came on, and said all units at the Pentagon, the control tower at Reagan Airport advises there's an airplane coming at you at high speed, it's 20 minutes out. Well, to jump ahead, this turned out to be flight 93, those blessed heroes brought down in Pennsylvania. So we now have this urgent alert, we have 20 minutes. And the assistant fire chief, who's a great friend of mine, Instantly went into type A management. This is not collaborative management. We're not going to have a meeting. We're not going to discuss and the pros and cons of what to do. He instantly said, evacuate all responders. Instantly. So we hit the alert tones. We had a preset designated uh, evacuation type signal. And that I thought was a phenomenal example of leadership act now. There's no time to mull this over. Think about it. If you remember, our primary ICS priority is life safety. And our assistant fire chief that morning, that was the first thing that hit his brain. He looked at all of us and said, evacuate everybody now which then results in the worst thing a cop or a firefighter can ever see is all of our responder types having to leave trouble. And so I, I attribute that as another shining example of crisis management and true leadership when it's needed. That's a great, 
a great story because imagine how many people were on the ground when you hit those towns to tell them to get out. We we estimated, and and here is another one where the NIMS referees would throw the flag. This is only an estimate because we had no idea. We think around 11 o'clock the morning of the 11th, we probably had about 1,700 responders on the ground. Now, one of the ironies is the Pentagon was undergoing reconstruction. Uh, Ironically, the groundbreaking of the Pentagon was September 11th, 1941. That date is not believed to be significant to the terrorists. but, but ironically, the attack happened, uh, the 60th an- anniversary of the groundbreaking. And the Pentagon was undergoing renovations based on the Murrow building bombing, where they decided to harden all the government targets. And ironically, um, the wing that the plane hit, the, the west side of the Pentagon, they hit the wrong side. And I'll get into that in a minute. But when I say we had about 1,700 responders on the ground, part of the people uh, we kind of shanghaied and started using for our purposes were the construction crews and their equipment. One of the very first things I remember happening, and, and it's the route I commuted to work every day, the side of the Pentagon that got hit, there is a six lane divided state highway that leads right to the Memorial Bridge into Washington. Well, it has HOV lanes. And the HOV lanes had Jersey barriers on both sides. One of my first memories of seeing the construction people, they took a jackhammer and they were tearing down the Jersey wall on the Pentagon side of the HOV lanes because that's where the medical people were putting up the triage tents and the HOV lanes. And somebody somewhere didn't have to go through a chain of command and ask permission to destroy this Jersey wall. They grabbed the construction guy with a jackhammer and they just tore it down. So there's a lot of that initiative, those types of little micro initiative things people do that are so very vital to lead to success. You've got to have an empowered workforce. You've got to have people thinking on their feet and reacting to the conditions they face. Yeah, sometimes when it's bad enough, we get really efficient. Yeah, it has to be has to be bad enough where we set aside all the nonsense and the power building and the egos and this is my lane and your lane because we know it's so bad we don't have time for that anymore. This is what it should look like. How do we get it done? Yes. What do you need to get done? If it's legal, moral, do it. Yep. And having the construction crews and all that equipment on the ground must have been a huge force multiplier because you didn't have to get them sent. You didn't have to call for them. They were already on scene. Absolutely. And, And I was not even remotely involved in it, but I know whoever did it, we basically captured all of those folks all of their equipment, and we never detected a sense that they were not devoted to our mission. Whatever it was, they did it. I I know by the afternoon of the 11th, we had gigantic dump trucks showing up with gravel to lay gravel roads across the lawn that the aircraft crossed to hit the building so they could bring in the heavy cranes and all of that. Somebody somewhere that I will probably never meet arranged all of that. So, yeah, there are a lot of moving parts. Uh, One of my leadership lessons there is you can't know everything, but you sure as heck better know the important stuff. And Marcus and Brent, I am not kidding you. I just learned something yesterday on Facebook about one of my officers assigned to my district, something he did that was phenomenal. And I learned about it yesterday, 20 years and one day later. So there are a thousand actions you'll never know about. And if they're not important, if they're not rise to the level of command necessity, 
then that's okay. You don't need to know it. I am still learning stuff 20 years later that I, I, I never knew. He, he was responding to the scene. He was directed to the scene. He was heading there, and just on the periphery of the Pentagon, he came across two Army doctors with a badly injured Pentagon employee. And the traffic was at this point gridlocked. It was still rush hour in the morning. And they ended up throwing this victim into John's police cruiser. And because of the traffic gridlock, he literally drove through people's front yards in his police car, red light and siren, to get this woman to the hospital. And when I read that, and he was a phenomenal officer, I, I put a reply on Facebook and I said, John, you are still phenomenal. But, but here I am, a unified commander, 20 years and one day later, finding another neat story. That's awesome. Yeah, one of my, uh, the, the deputy chief, uh, that was one of our three unified commanders. He and I are best friends. We went through the police academy together. For 20 years, we've been calling each other saying, hey, did you know X? Did you know Y? And, and every time I call him, he has no idea what I'm talking about. And every time he calls me, I have no idea what he's talking about. So there are a million stories out there. You just, as a commander, better be sure you're knowing the real vital ones. Yeah. And, and inversely being somebody who's a fairly new uh, leader in assigned to those incident management teams or liaison positions, unified command stuff, you don't really appreciate how much work goes into those. Like you really do have to order those people to go home because they have yeah. so much buy-in to that process because if it breaks down a little bit, some boot on the ground is not getting equipment, gear, food, whatever it is they might need to accomplish the mission. And they know it. And so they don't like to go home. And uh, you can watch them, just like you said, drag themselves where you're on day seven, eight, 12. And you're like, hey, man, you, you're not looking good. <laughs> you got you to gotta go. And uh, I'll, I'll tell you the bad story. Uh, we had a cadre of officers. I think it was about 65 officers designated to work the rubble pile under FBI uh, supervision. Uh, and, and the way we set it up, uh, because they were finding body parts and, and parts of the aircraft, the way we set it up is you worked one day on the rubble pile, you worked one day off the Pentagon. If you were a patrol detective, you worked patrol. If you were a detective, you went back to CID, and then the third day you were off. The fourth day you came back on the rubble pile and you did that three day deal. Our very last day we worked the rubble pile, one of our detectives was driving home, fell asleep at the wheel, ran off the interstate and rear-ended a parked tractor trailer. He was almost killed, he was very badly injured, he was off work for about six months. And we took that as a personal hit that we were not monitoring his fatigue level. Uh, part of our after action, we, we looked at all kinds of different aspects of our response. And we decided we failed him because he should not have been driving 25 miles home, that tired after working 12 hours on the rubble pile. And, and so that was one of our dozens of lessons learned is we have really got to monitor our people closely. And it probably leads way back to when the chief of the police took the three of us and said, who's off tomorrow? Who's off Monday? Who's off Tuesday? Because you do have to recharge your batteries. You absolutely have to. Yeah, and describe that for, for someone who might not be familiar. That That's a pretty, especially from a law enforcement point of view versus fire and EMS, that rubble pyre, pile and the logistics involved in that. You have, if you could just paint a little picture for listeners if they, if they haven't seen that part of it. You have a, a debris field 
you have uh, a pile that consists of a plane, a building, employees, passengers, and and in that is evidence as well as biological issues. And then you have to sort through all that and document it and assign it, which in and of itself is a Herculean task. Can you talk to us a little bit just about what that looked like? Sure. And let me add one, two other elements to that rubble pile, classified documents and a decision the Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld made that I totally agree with, personal effects. The word came down, if you find anything identifiable to anybody, it goes in this particular dumpster. We could find a training certificate or a plaque of somebody's prior assignment. If it was attributable to a specific person, there was a specific dumpster that item went into if it was not evidence. So the way it worked, uh, we devoted about 65 uh, crime scene techs and detectives to evidence recovery. Obviously, uh, it's a federal crime. The FBI is supervising the search for evidence and body remains. So what would happen, uh, all of our people and people from other agencies would have to sign a non-disclosure uh, agreement that they would not discuss uh, anything about the condition of human remains or any classified documents or information they found. And there were separate dumpsters for classified information, personal effects, aircraft parts, or other evidence. And then we had refrigerated trucks for human remains. So uh, um, what, what happened the first two days, they were trying to screen all the rubble inside the building and it wasn't working. There were uh, concerns about future collapse. So what was happening, uh, the rubble was removed out to Pentagon North Parking. Somebody, I have no idea who, probably somebody at the Pentagon, had privacy fencing erected around the North Parking lot. So even though it was well within the outer perimeter, uh, privacy fencing was up so you couldn't see the rubble pile on foot or from a vehicle. So the rubble would be brought out, kind of thinned out to about two, three feet high. The first thing that would happen is uh, search dogs would go over the rubble. Any indications on any human remains, uh, the FBI, an FBI agent would move in. Uh, they would come across human remains. They would be respectfully removed and put in a refrigerated truck. Once the dogs were done searching, then the people would move in, all wearing level C personal protective equipment. We were very, very um, adamant that you didn't go in the building or anywhere near the rubble pile without being wearing what our list of personal protective equipment was, including NIOSH double filter respirators. So they would move in in the hot uh, mid-September, still summer in Northern Virginia. Uh, they would move in with tools and go through the pile. And if they found personal effects, classified documents, aircraft parts, anything that might be considered evidence, they were removed to specific places. When they were done, they've now thinned the pile out even thinner. The last move would be the cadaver dogs would come back in. They would do one last search for any human remains. Once the dogs were finished, any other remains recovered, the rubble that was then placed in uh, separate dumpsters to be taken away. And they just repeated that day after day. I believe we did the rubble pile outside 15 days uh, in the heat. That's the, so amazing to me that you, you're describing a process that makes perfect sense, right? Until you get yeah. to the part where you say, we're putting them in dumpsters. Yes. Like, yeah, that's the volume, that was, the volume that your folks dealt with. Oh, yeah. Literally yeah. was 
dumpsters. Well, <laughs> in fact, I'm going to look at my little cheat sheet. And uh, in in that effort, uh, we went through 4,250 level C Tyvek suits. And a corresponding, you know, they use leather gloves more than once. And what would happen? The crew would go out in the morning and they would work. There would come a break. Uh, they would, you know, uh, hydrate and all of that. At lunchtime, they would come off the rubble pile. They would go through decon, technical decon. So we've got to have the fire department, hazmat people there. They would uh, derobe all of their outer protective stuff, the rubber boots, the gloves, all that. Uh, They would have lunch or some kind of nutrition, hydration. They would put on all new stuff in the afternoon and go back on the pile. So any individual working the rubble pile was going through at least two suits a day. Uh, and, And we were... And when I say we, I'm talking about the whole response organization. It didn't matter if you were urban search and rescue team, Arlington Fire, mutual aid fire, Arlington police. If you were in a hazard zone, we very strictly enforced personal protective equipment rules that we had set. And despite that, uh, unfortunately, we do have quite a few response personnel that are now um, suffering uh, from some of them terminal illnesses. We have a corporal from my department uh, that worked the rubble pile. Uh, He was an evidence tech, great guy. Uh, He passed away a few years ago from a rare cancer. Uh, My belief is we have 17 sworn people from my department with various, very serious illnesses. I have heard, I can't confirm this, I have heard nine FBI agents have passed away that were at the Pentagon. And and again, we were dutifully wearing level C PPE, but a building built in 1941, you're talking about asbestos and lead and all of those burning contents of polyester carpeting and you know, drywall and all of that. Um, and and that, that becomes a leadership issue. When we first started getting people coming down with illnesses, we were shocked because we were adamant about the safety clothing that was required to go anywhere near it. Uh, I went in uh, the building twice. Um, one of the times I went in, uh, I took our uh, county manager and our chief of police in. Uh, We witnessed uh, a very respectful recovery uh, of a victim's remains in the building. Uh, I took them in to witness that from a distance. And we were all suited up and we all had to go through technical decon. Uh, This was uh, four days later. So, we have these other environmental hazards that are rearing its ugly head uh, up in New York and at Pentagon. And uh, there's a leadership issue. You've got to make the people uh, respect your safety rules. And we did, but, but even now it's so frustrating to hear about the illnesses people are coming down with. And it's human nature, right? You, you'll, you'll have guys that, uh, want to take off their safety gear, say in SWAT, because they're uncomfortable for six hours, you know, and then uh, no one, everyone complains about the size of a bear cat until they get shot at. And then it's the best room in the whole entire world. And, yeah. and guys will do that stuff. Uh, I'm, I'm not, I wasn't in the military, but military guys tell me the, the same thing. They'll, they'll jump out of a helicopter if they're hot enough, you know, and they've been, oh, yeah. with no, no concern for the long-term effects of what, what they might be doing. And so yeah. it's very, the PPE thing's huge. Uh, Brent, you had a question. Yeah. Tom, as, as I'm listening to you talk, I'm envisioning myself um, kind of in your shoes that day and you're, you're driving 
to work, you're taking the route that you've always taken and the, the, you're having to navigate to get yourself to the to this command post and you're getting there. And as you get to a command position, I can only imagine the millions of different things that are you're, you're looking at um, that that, um, that you're seeing. I'm putting myself in, you know, in any critical incident that we've ever been the commander of and you're, you're rapidly trying to get your feet underneath you. You know, you're, you're, you're seeing things, you're smelling, you're hearing it, and you're trying to map out a plan. And everybody's looking to you at this point for what are you going to do? With all the competing interests and the things that were going on, how did you prioritize what needed to be done when there were so many competing priorities? Well, um, a lot of that was through collaboration. Um, in addition, we were making decisions based upon intel we were getting fed live, immediate, and raw. Some of the intel turned out not to be correct. You expect that. So we were balancing what we thought we had to accomplish with we've got to do it within certain constrictions. Early on in the command post, we are told uh, by an FBI agent, and very appropriately, he said, at this point, we believe there are 11 hijacked aircraft total in the country. Well, we've accounted for three. Very soon, the heroes brought down 93 in Pennsylvania. Well, we still have seven left. We're thinking they hit the World Trade Center twice. The Pentagon is the largest office building in the world. We've got another one coming at us. So we're balancing the, this surreal incident with surreal information we've we've never received the likes of it before but but we're doing those things that we all know by just by instinct we have to have a perimeter we've got to stop all traffic and it was still morning rush hour we've got to have an inner perimeter uh, the FBI wants all of our crime scene texts that we can get to help them sweep the outer lawn where the airplane hit. So that's a priority. Uh, we've got to assign uh, somebody uh, to attach themselves to the hip of the lead FBI agent on the scene. We've got to do this and that. And you just start thinking these things. But, but I would like to interrupt my answer with an observation I made years ago. I think at that time I was the most trained captain in the department. I don't think anybody else of any rank had any more training than I had. If you had taken me aside the day before, if you took me aside Monday morning, September 10th, gave me a legal pad, said, Tom, you have two hours. We're going to give you this outrageous scenario of terrorist hijacking a 757 and flying it into the Pentagon. Here's a legal pad. Write down all the issues you can think of. You have two hours. I would have done an incredible job based on my training, experience, all of that. And Brent and Marcus, I would have missed the point by 30%. I would have missed the mark by 30%. If, if I had taken it the day after 9-11, I would have thought of most of that 30% I never would have thought of before it happened. But you are going to face all of these totally strange challenges um, as, as to all of these, these different things. Uh, Marcus saw this on my case study. Uh, and, and I say this with the greatest praise for our military. We ended up uh, with what I call a clash of two honorable cultures. We have now the collapse of the impact site, the building collapsed around where the airplane went through. We've got structural issues with adjoining areas. We're afraid there's more collapse. And in the midst of all this, in the first 30, 40 minutes, we have a large number of Pentagon employees, a lot of them military personnel, running back into the rubble, doing heroic rescues. That's great. But 
what is the civilian world's first tactical priority? Life safety. There came a point in time where we all agreed this has to stop. We have got to stop. We had literally, and I, I've seen pictures of it, we had police officers and firefighters wrestling with military personnel to keep them from running in to the impact site because we were expecting another collapse. So eventually, the decision is made, we have got to get the military to stand down. And I was not involved in the strategies or the tactics of this, but somebody grabbed a Pentagon Police Department deputy chief, and he was told, go find the biggest number of stars on somebody's shoulder and talk them into ordering the military to stand down and quit running into the impact site. And Marcus, I don't know if you remember it. I have a picture in my case study of a Pentagon police deputy chief face-to-face uh, -face with a three-star army general. It's the most stars he could find uh, out on that part of the lawn. And they had a very uh, heartfelt, contentious discussion for a few minutes. And finally, the three-star general saw the wisdom of our argument. I wasn't involved in it. And he, in a very short time, passed the word along, everybody stand down and respect what the re civilian responders are trying to do. And, and Marcus, I don't know if you remember the photo right behind the three-star general was a one-star army general mm -hmm. with his hands out in a kind of WTF kind of posture. And you could tell he wasn't happy about it, but you've got to do those hard things to ensure less tragedy, to ensure more safety, and to get your objectives done. And uh, it became a famous episode that our assistant fire chief for quite a few years, our primary unified commander, uh, went to Harvard University every year and talked about it. And they actually did a crisis leadership monograph on our effort to get the military to bend their attitudes towards our life safety uh, position. You know, and that's consistent. That was, you know, 20 years ago, right? This is right. two days ago, 20 years ago. And uh, still every single after action report for a mass casualty incident in law enforcement will have self-deployment as one of the top three issues that you have to deal with upon your arrival, because it's counterintuitive. Everyone wants to be involved. They all want to go. They all want to go make a positive impact, but you've got to do that in that disciplined and controlled way. And we still fight that, right? Because the people we pick for these jobs are people that want to fix things and they don't, they don't want to stand aside and you have to do that initial discipline. And then in the end, it'll pick itself back up and actually be faster but it's counterintuitive because it doesn't feel faster because you're asking me to implement a bureaucracy. And well, I'll tell you the, about one o'clock the afternoon of the 11th, I, I pissed off, excuse my French, I pissed off more officers than I think I ever have as a captain. And it was our crime scene techs. We had a whole bunch show up uh, off duty uh, all of our crime scene techs all have take-home cars. So they all, if they lived out of the county, they got to wherever they parked their take-home car and came to the scene. And at about one o'clock, once we had figured out everybody we really had at the scene, I grabbed about 15 of them and called them off to the side. And I said, you're going home right now. And I thought I was gonna to have to shoot my way out of that crowd, but I told them, I said, you're coming back at 11 tonight. We're gonna to go 24 seven until further notice. You have to leave. This is not optional, it's an order. You are now leaving, go home, get some rest, take a shower, rest up, 
you be back at law enforcement staging at 11 o'clock tonight because you're working the interior tonight with the FBI. And I'm telling you, I, I thought I was going to have to shoot my way out of that crowd, but that there's another leadership issue. You, you've got to manage your people, manage them appropriately. Not everybody's going to be happy, but you've got to do what the organization needs. We, we've had uh, multiple fires in our jurisdiction and everyone, it's an all call. Everyone shows up and, and then, uh, you know, you work that first 20 hours, 24 hours, sometimes 30 hours of the problem. And then you got to start looking at, okay, how do I, how do I slice this pie up and get people back? And people argue, people don't hear the radio. Uh, yeah. People are like, Hey, no, what I'm doing is like, I can't leave right now, but I'll, I'll check in in a little bit. Like all, yeah, no one very once in a while, you'll get someone who just literally was beat up for the last 20 hours. And they're like, yeah, man, I'm good. I'll see you yeah. guys in six, eight hours. But most of the time it's, it's very, uh, you see human nature get real creative on ways that they, well, I don't, I don't need to go home right now <laughs> and, and right. do that. I think I, as a captain, I think I've only used these words twice. And the whole time I was a captain, I looked at all of them and I said, this is a direct order. You are to leave now. This is a direct order. I, I only remember ever using that once before. And that was to a lieutenant that didn't even work for me. <laughs> that was arguing with it. So, yeah, uh, you've got to, your type A personality has to come out now and then. Uh, you've got to manage your incident uh, in the best possible means you have. And, and Brent, I, I would like to follow up with another leadership thing. Um, once our deputy chief uh, arrived from Richmond, we were there about an hour and we had a lieutenant who was off duty that lived way, way out near Dulles Airport. He made it to the command post, really sharp guy. Uh, he was a rising star in the department. And when he showed up at the command post, the deputy chief grabbed him and said, Dave, I've got a job for you. And he handed this lieutenant a tablet of paper. And he said, you go off to the side, turn your radio off you come up with a list of stuff we need to think about in three hours. What do we need to worry about in six hours? What do we need to worry about in nine hours? Don't get involved in anything. We got plenty of people here. We've got the now taken care of. I want you to go out and predict the near future. And so Dave went off with this tablet and he came back in a little bit and he had a pretty darn nice list of things to consider, including we're gonna have to feed everybody. Do we have enough porta potties for 1700 people? And I can tell you for quite a few hours, we didn't, which became an issue. But, you know, he came back with this list. So if you have that luxury of, of planning ahead because I'll tell you all the rest of us at that point, were living in the now we, we weren't even able to think 10 minutes down the road. We are just so reactive to everything happening. Um, and, and I talk about the dynamic phase of an incident and the managed phase. And we probably didn't get, to the managed phase till I think about six o'clock that night. By then we had formalized what the unified command team was gonna look like, who was gonna be on it from my agency. And we were then in, we were still responsive and reactive to all kinds of things, but we think we had built our organization correctly and sufficiently by about 6 p.m. the night, the evening of the 11th. Um, there's there's so much good stuff that we're talking about here, man, and I, and I really like it. And something that kind of is encouraging uh, to me, and I hope is encouraging to anybody who is listening, knowing that uh, you said that, you know, you've been well prepared up to that point, and the training is a big proportion, uh, a, a big portion of what, what we do, and that's why you teach um, still, and you're preparing 
preparing officers and commanders. And so we want people to be prepared and we're obviously big proponents of training. And so that's, that's a big, a big component of it. And then you talked about leveraging the professional relationships that you already had, because it was going to require so many different entities from so many different areas in and outside of law enforcement, in and outside of fire, in and outside of the military to help be able to get this thing done. So these are things that people can do, incident commanders can do before they ever take command or before they're ever faced with a critical incident is to have that training already dialed in, to have those professional relationships get there. And that kind of speaks to your collaboration point. But then the final piece of what you're talking about here is really the stuff that's pretty basic uh, to, 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 to anybody here, which is you're talking about an inner and an outer perimeter, traffic components, evacuations, instilling an overall um, you know, end state for this, which was you know, to, we're going to instill life-saving measures. And then being able to have people go from there, and and I understand there's a that's probably an oversimplification of it, but these are the things that I'm picking up when I'm talking about this, and these are the type of principles that can be shrunk down or expanded. You know, you know, I hope that none of us ever face what you faced, right? And the vast majority of us are going to deal with tactical incidents or or, or fires or natural incidents or things like that. But these are the things that are. Um, that are, were found in, in each of these critical incidents. And these are the things that I'm really taking from you and, and talking about that dynamic phase and how it, how it leads over into a managed phase. That's, that's really good. I've learned a lot from, from listening to you talk about that. There's one thing you said early on too that I wanted to come back to, and it kind of resonates with me based on, on my uh, position. And you said that early on, I don't think it was your chief because your chief was out of town training, but whoever was the acting chief did not respond to the scene, that they stayed back there. And you said that was appropriate. So what do you view the role of an executive early on? Because, you know, there's probably a couple different kinds of executives, those who really want to want to be there and be a part and love the organization and feel like they need to, to be there. But if they're not prepared to take some sort of a command role, or maybe it's not even appropriate to take a command role because they need to look at the overall organizational response, what is an appropriate role for them? How do they stay engaged and supportive for their organization, the people that are there, without getting in the way of an incident commander, kind of keeping those 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 roles um, ironed out? That, that that's a great question, Brent. If your agency is big enough, your chief officer, whether it's the fire chief or the police chief or the sheriff, should not be in charge. They have other roles, and I see them as really having kind of three roles. And some of this I'm stealing from something I've heard at a different seminar. One of their roles is they're the tiebreaker. If, if there is some decision being mauled around, do we do this? And it's, it's not tactically vital that you have an instant answer, like the evacuation issue. But you have an, another issue. The role of the, the chief executive is to break through bureaucracy. Number two, be the tiebreaker in case a decision rises to that level. Uh, do, we, do we end the rescue phase and go to recovery? That was a decision way above all of our pay grade in the command post. We gave the top leaders the input that, to put it very bluntly, we are not going to find any more survivors. We're now six, seven days in. They've tried everything, dog, search dogs, listening devices, all of that. We were confident we would not find any more survivors to rescue. So we made the suggestion, flowed uphill to the top levels, that we go from a rescue operation to a recovery operation. So that, that's kind of what they're getting the big bucks for. Let's let them make that decision because there are political implications to that because all of those hundreds of people at home waiting for news of their loved ones, once we make that announcement, they know there ain't going to be any good news coming out of this. So it's important they're involved in that. Uh, as I mentioned, to be the tiebreaker. And, and third, to kind of be a sounding board. Something, and again, I can't take any credit for this. 
by the afternoon of the 12th, we had a command staff meeting every day at 5 p.m., starting on the 12th. The chief, all three deputy chiefs, 12 captains, our Joint Terrorism Task Force representative on the FBI. And we would have a staff meeting at 5 p.m. every day. Okay, what's happened in the last 24 hours? What's the new stuff? What can we demobilize? What do we have to mobilize now on day two, day three? I know you all have a SWAT background. Uh, we probably changed the SWAT team's taskings three or four times based upon intelligence. So you're always looking at your operation. What, what can we do away with? Uh, I mentioned our very first ops period. We believe FBI, fire, police, EMS, construction people, we believe we had about 1,700 responders. Our very last operational period, the very last day we had troops on the ground was about 12 motorcycle officers and one supervisor. That was the day we opened the six lane state highway adjacent to the crash site. The Pentagon erected about a 10 foot high uh, fencing with that tennis, that green privacy tennis layer. So people couldn't see. State highway department came out, put up no parking signs on the shoulders in both directions. They had programmable message boards and the afternoon we opened up that highway, we had Arlington motorcycles and state police motorcycles on both sides on the shoulder with programmable message boards that said, no stopping, you will be ticketed. And that was our last operational period. So you're always reviewing, what do we have to do tomorrow? What did we do today? What don't we have to do tomorrow? What extra do we have to do tomorrow? So you've got to always be looking at kind of a three-pronged approach. Uh, I mentioned uh, our posture from our SWAT team and a mutual aid SWAT team and the Virginia State Police SWAT team. Their posture changed probably four major times based upon intel that was coming in. And Marcus, I, I promise you a humorous story. Well, here it is. Uh, because this is the first time international terrorism is now affecting local police in the US, uh, we had activated our SWAT team pretty early. We had three SWAT officers each in different SUVs and they were a quick response force. So if something popped up, we were getting intel continually from the FBI that we were gonna get attacked again on the ground. We had uh, an Arlington police sniper team deployed across the interstate highway from the Pentagon on a balcony at uh, Drug Enforcement Administration headquarters because one of the intel was a van uh, on the open interstate was gonna pull over and, and spray our command post area with machine gun fire. Well, you've gotta act on it. So we had a sniper team deployed. Well, here's the good story, uh, Marcus, you'll enjoy. About day three, uh, the FBI comes out with intel that a jihadist is gonna fly over our site in an ultralight and drop an improvised explosive device on us. So we took this info, we sat around and said, gee, what the heck do we do about this? So, uh, our SWAT team uh, went out and acquired long-barreled shotguns, and they got rifled slugs. And so they had, I don't know, five or six SWAT officers with AR-15s, five or six with long-barreled shotguns with rifled slugs. And these guys were, were ready for bear. They were, they were going to shoot this guy down. And so I'm standing there, and uh, having had having – been, had been on the SWAT team myself. I'm standing next to a lieutenant on the SWAT team, and he's got this big grin on his face. 
and he's got one of the long barrel shotguns. And I said, Brian, what are you smiling about? He said, you know what? If we shoot down this so-and-so, we're going to paint a picture of an ultralight on the side of the SWAT truck, just like fighter planes in World War II. You know, they had the enemy, enemy flag on the side of their airplanes. Brian had already figured out they were going to paint an ultralight on the side of the swamp. <laughs> so, and, as part and, of his demo, as part of his yeah. demo plan. Oh, and I'll tell you, I think he was sorely disappointed that this ultralight never showed up. But, uh, but I'll tell you, that is an example of where you do need humor and the face of something like that. This is the worst thing you're ever going to see. Uh, we were actually told to prepare for over a thousand dead. We ordered a thousand body bags based on the intel from the Pentagon. We got very lucky. I won't go into all of it. The terrorists hit the wrong side of the building. The side they hit was just being reoccupied after reconstruction. Had they hit any of the other four sides, we would have had over a thousand dead. But we got lucky. As brilliant as their terrorist plan was, it wasn't 100% brilliant. They, uh, a little bit of research, they, they could have done more damage. But, but there is a place for humor. As we all know, people call it gallows humor or, you know, other names. But this is a stress reliever, and you certainly needed it. And when he told me about painting the ultralight on the side of the SWAT truck, I laughed too. I thought it was a great idea. And we had a guy uh, that worked for me that was a great artist. And I already envisioned him painting the ultralight on the side of the SWAT truck. So uh, you have to have humor too. That's fantastic. Uh, I know we've already, we're, I know uh, we're already past an hour of your time, but I, I didn't want to leave abruptly. And, and we're mostly through your story, but you know, we could dissect this thing. The, the, and and the, correct me if I overstated this, but this is by far the largest event that impacted your life professionally. And, and thank God you were prepared for it as much as anybody could be. Other than seeing my two children being born, it's the most profound experience of my life. I, uh, every year on the anniversary is a very reflective time for me. Uh, I always look forward to both of my children calling me on that day, uh, which is a nice feeling. Uh, my best friend, the, the deputy chief, that was uh, uh, also one of the unified commanders, uh, we not only talk Saturday, we talk today. So it's a very reflective, uh, very somber time for us. But there are a lot of lessons learned, and we just need to keep pushing that ball down the road, uh, those lessons learned and and learn from them. I'm, I'm, I'm so proud to be involved in that 314 class. Every time we have 40, 45 people gravitate through there, I think they're going back to their home jurisdictions better than they were on Monday when they arrived. Absolutely. Absolutely. And especially because it's so practical exercise focused, right? So... Um, I had no complaints about the PowerPoint in the beginning because I needed the review and it sets the tone. And after that, you're you're just learning as you go. And it's, uh, uh, I thought yeah. it was great. Yeah. Start start running at, right after lunch on Tuesday. Yeah. And, and we know the Tuesday morning PowerPoint is a little tough, but it's all important stuff. You got to get out of there. So. We're, we, this is probably, since I've been with the program, probably the fifth or sixth iteration of Tuesday morning. We're always looking and working to improving it. But we do feel uh, because of the wide diversity of experience that's sitting at the tables, you never know what people know and what they don't. So we kind of feel an obligation to cover that. No, a nice review is great. And uh, you pick up on some stuff and nothing makes you pay attention more than knowing that you're about to exercise that when you're done in a real, in a real application. So it's not just, uh, it's like, Oh, 
I forgot about that part. So uh, I think that's great. Uh, I'm hoping that uh, we can highlight uh, that program some more um, through the with permission from the college here in a future podcast. But do you have any, uh, you know, especially because it's the 20th year anniversary and you spent, I'm sure, all week reflecting and answering questions and talking about stuff and finding out stuff that happened that you didn't know. And uh, that's awesome. But any any other big thoughts that you thought about and that you would pass on to the the generations that that are coming behind you and behind, you know, Brent and I and preparing for whatever this new challenge for law enforcement is going to be in the future as we you know, we're, terrorists aren't going to go away. When, when you look at the dramatic uh, evacuations law enforcement is doing in California right now with the fires, when you look at uh, the Nevada, the Las Vegas active shooter, you look at Sandy Hook or all these school shootings, you look at 9-11, just take a deep breath. Think of what has to be done right now. Maybe it is, well, we can't go up that canyon road anymore because the wildland fire has jumped the road. So, or, or maybe I see my immediate backup pulling up at the school. I'm waiting for this one other cop, and then we're going downrange after the active shooter. Think about what's got to be done now. Rely on your training, and and this may sound corny, rely on your gut. Rely on your training, your gut, your experience, and I think more times than not, you're going to end up doing the right thing. It doesn't mean people may, may not be burned to death in that wildland fire. It doesn't mean that more kids in that school might not get shot or that more concert goers in Las Vegas might might be exposed to gunfire. But it means that figure out what your job is and do it within your capability to get it done. Whether it's one cop going downrange or 22 cops or deputies or troopers going downrange, figure out what that group, whether it's one or 22 people, figure out what you can accomplish and go do it. I believe, I don't know if you did this on purpose, but I believe you just quoted Sun Tzu. So, uh, so yeah, the, the, the problem is the same. Yeah, I have read him. So one, yeah. one or 20, the, the problem, yeah. the problem is the same. Brent, do you have any closing thoughts? No, this was good. It was real thought provoking. Got a page worth of notes here of things that I've been taking and, and things that uh, I've learned as well. It's good to, Good to hear and listen, and um, thank you so much for your willingness to share your lessons learned and uh, your experience. And uh, we'll, so we'll do uh, do our best to take the information that you've provided um, for us and be able to, to make sure that it gets to, to other people who are going to be uh, able to serve their communities better because of, of what you've taught us. So thank you. Well, and, and thank you guys for passing this on. And and I I did things that I learned elsewhere. Uh, you know, I wasn't this incredible standalone genius. None of us were, but we took experiences and things we learned in educational settings and we put it to work. And, and I commend you guys for doing the same thing. I, I think that's how our profession just keeps getting better and, and getting smarter. Thank you for listening to the Cato podcast. To become a member of Cato, check out our website at catonews.org. If you have a topic suggestion, please send them to podcast at catonews.org. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with a friend and rate us on the platform of your choice.